Chapter Two of A Float on the Ohio, an historical pilgrimage of a thousand miles in a skiff from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. A Float on the Ohio by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter Two. First day on the Ohio at Logstown. Beaver River, Monday, May seventh. We have to-day rowed and paddled under a cloudless sky, but in the teeth of frequent squalls, with heavy waves freely dashing their spray upon us. At such times a goodly current aided by numerous wing-dams appears of a little avail, for when we rested upon our oars, Pilgrim would be unmercifully driven upstream. Thus it has been an almost continual fight to make progress, and our five-and-twenty miles represent a hard day's work. We were overloaded, that was certain, so we stopped at Charter, three miles down for the river from Pittsburgh, and sent on our portly bag of conventional travelling clothes by express to Cincinnati, where we intended stopping for a day. This leaves us in our rough boating costumes for all the smaller towns en route. What we may lose in possible social embarrassments, we gain in lightened cargo. Here, at the mouth of Charter's Creek, was Charter Old Town, of a century and a third ago, a straggling, unkempt Indian village then, but at least the banks were lovely, and the rolling distances clothed with majestic trees. Today these creek banks, connected with numerous iron bridges, are the dumping ground for cinders, slag, rubbish of every degree of foulness. The bare hillsides are crowded with the ugly dwellings of iron workers. The atmosphere is thick with smoke. Washington, one of the greatest land speculators of his time, owned over 32,000 acres along the Ohio. He held a patent from Lord Dunmore, dated July 5, 1775, for nearly 3,000 acres lying about the mouth of the stream. In accordance with the free and easy habit of trans-Allegheny pioneers, ten men squatted on the tract, greatly to the indignation of the father of his country, who in 1784 brought against them a successful suit for ejectment. Twelve years later, more familiar with this than with most of his land grants, he sold it to a friend for $12,000. Just below Chartier are the picturesque McKee's Rocks, where is the first riffle in the Ohio. We take it with a swoop, the white-capped waves dancing about us in a miniature rapid. Then we are in open country, and for the first time find what the great river is like. The character of the banks, for some distance below Pittsburgh, differs from that of the Monongahela. The hills are lower, less precipitous, more graceful. There is a delightful roundness of mass and shade. Beautiful villas occupy commanding situations on hillsides and hilltops. We catch glimpses of spires and cupolas, singly or in groups, peeping above the trees, and now and then a pretty suburban railway station. The railways upon either bank are built upon neat terraces, and far from marring the scene, agreeably give life to it. Now and then three such terraces are to be traced, one above the other, against the dark background of wood and field, the lower and upper devoted to rival railway lines the central one to the common way. The mouths of the beautiful tributary ravines are crossed either by graceful iron spans, which frame charming undercurrent glimpses of sparkling waterfalls and deep tangles of moss and fern, or by graceful stone arches draped with vines. There are terraced vineyards after the fashion of the Rhineland, and the gentle arts of the florist and the truck gardener are much in evidence. The winding river frequently sweeps at the base of rocky escarpments, but upon one side or the other there are invariable bottomlands, narrow on these upper reaches, but we shall find them gradually widen and lengthen as we descend. The reaches are from four to seven miles in length, but these too are to lengthen in the middle waters. Islands are more frequent, all day. 
The largest is Neville's, five miles long and thickly strewn with villas and market gardens. Still others are but long sandbars grown to willows, and but temporarily in sight, for the stage of water is low just now, not over seven feet in the channel. Emerging from the immediate suburbs of Pittsburgh, the fields broaden, farmsteads are occasionally to be seen nestled in the undulations of the hills. Woodlands become more dense. There are, however, small rustic towns in plenty. We are seldom out of sight of these. Climbing a steep clay slope on the left bank, we visited one of them, Shoustown, fourteen miles below the city. A sad-eyed shabby place with the pipeline for natural grass sprawling hither and yon upon the surface of the ground, except at the street crossings where a few inches of protecting earth have been laid upon it. The tariff levied by the gas company is ten cents per month for each light, and a dollar and a half for a cook-stove. We passed this afternoon one of the most interesting historic points upon the river, the picturesque site of ancient Logstown, upon the summit of a low, steep ridge on the right bank, just below Economy, and eighteen miles from Pittsburgh. Logstown was a Shawanese village as early as 1727-30, to 30, an already notable fur-trading post when Conrad Weiser visited it in 1748. Washington and Gis stopped at Logistown for five days on their visit to the French at Fort Lebu, and several famous Indian treaties were signed there. A short distance below, Anthony Wayne's western army was encamped during the winter of 1792 to 1793, the place being then styled Legionville. In 1824, George Rapp founded in the neighborhood a German socialist community, and this later settlement survives to the present day in the thriving little rustic town of economy. At four o'clock we struck camp on a heavily willowed shore, at the apex of the great northern bend of the Ohio, twenty-five miles. Across the river, on a broad level bottom, are the manufacturing towns of Rochester and Beaver, divided by the Beaver River. In the rear, well-rounded hills rise gracefully, checkered with brown fields and woods in many shades of green in the midst of which the flowering white dogwood rears its stately spray. Our sloping willow sand-beach, of a hundred feet in width, is thick strewn with driftwood. Back of this clay bank, eight feet sheer, and a narrow bottom cut with small fruit and vegetable patches, the gardener's neat frame houses peeping from groves of apple, pear, and cherry upon the flanking hillsides. A lofty oil-well derrick surmounts the edge of the terrace, a hundred yards below our camp. The bushes and the ground round about the well are black and slimy with crude petroleum, that has escaped during the boring process, and the air is heavy with its odor. We are upon the edge of the far-stretching oil and gas well region, and shall soon become familiar enough with such sights and smells in the neighborhood of our nightly camps. No sooner had Pilgrim been turned up against a tree to dry, and a smooth sandy open chosen for the camp, than the proprietor of the soil appeared, a middling-sized lanky man, with a red face and sandy goatee, surmounting a collarless white shirt, all bestained with tobacco-juice. He inquired rather sharply concerning us, but when informed of our innocent errand, and that we should stay with him but the night, he promptly softened, explaining that the presence of marauding fishermen and houseboat folk was incompatible with gardening for profit, and he would have none of them touching upon his shore. As to us, we were welcome to stop throughout our pleasure, an invitation he reinforced by sitting upon a stump, whittling vigorously meanwhile, and glibly gossiping about the doctor and me for half an hour on crop conditions and the state of the country. Being sociable like, he said, and having nothing gany folks, as you know what's what, I can see with half an eye. End of chapter two.